0: This is Quietly Yours, an old-time radio podcast, as usual, hosted by me, Matt, and I'm here with David. David, what's happening?
1: Not much. Um, hey, everybody.
0: So this week, uh, we're doing something quite different. Um, you know, as, as I said a minute ago, we're an old-time radio podcast, but uh, old-time radio, uh, per, you know, the what, however you quantify it, supposedly ends in 1962, But there's a lot of great programs afterwards. um, One of which being perhaps the most famous, uh, at least American post old time radio program, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Um, This has kind of come up here and there, uh, but we decided to finally do an episode, an episode in full, and these are an hour long. um, But we are doing an episode from the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, one of my favorites, an episode called The Ninth Volume, which aired on December 30th, nineteen. 77. Um, So yeah, as usual, listen to the episode an hour this time. uh, And then afterwards, uh, we're going to chat about it.
2: News Radio 78
3: WBBM Chicago. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents
4: I'm E.G. Marshall. How great is our capacity for belief? Most people would probably claim they'll believe anything they can see, feel, taste, touch, or hear. In short, anything they could experience with their senses. But I will venture to say there are things in this world so fantastic, so incredible, that you or I could stare at them with our own two eyes and swear under oath that we were not seeing was there. Sharky, you have got to support me on this. I can't. You've got to. Uh, never take my word alone. I, I sound like a raving lunatic. I'm sorry, Mr. Perch, but I can't do it. You were down there with me. You saw it just like I did. No, I didn't. What? I didn't see it. Neither did you. We didn't see a thing. There's nothing down there. <laughs>
5: The mystery drama, The Ninth Volume, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Percy Granger and stars Michael Wager. It is
4: sponsored in part by Contact, the 12-hour cold capsule, and True Value
5: Hardware Stores. I'll be back shortly with Act One.
4: Introducing the new century, a Buick like you've never seen before. A little science. The fastback design is pure function. Ah, but the execution is pure beauty. A little magic. The trim new century has a new design, a new size. A little science. But inside, there's more head and leg room than last year. A little magic. Say, that wouldn't be the new York century, would it? Yes, sir, that's it. Boy, it looks so good, I can't believe it. Yes, sir. And all that room and luxury in there. I mean, it's hard to believe, you know? Yes, sir. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. How'd you
5: guys do it anyway? Sir, you'd never believe it. They
4: surely
0: will have found you The amazing things
4: you see The cars
2: they're wonderful How can they see?
6: This is Elizabeth Taylor. I've had the opportunity to play a lot of different women on the screen. It's fun to pretend to be somebody else and to be able to throw off that characterization whenever it suits you. But my real life and yours is one characterization that none of us can cast off when the going gets tough. No matter who you are, the most important thing any one of us can have when you need help is someone else. There's one organization that tries for thousands of agencies and programs to be there when people do need help. It's the United Way. And they don't claim to have all the answers. But with your support, they are there. And they are someone to the people that need them the most. Thanks to you, it works. And for all of us, the United Way.
5: A great deal about these days. The kind of energy provided
4: by oil and coal, that is. We hear debates as to how much of these precious substances are left. Some say supplies are virtually
5: unlimited. Others say we'll run out in two to three hundred years. And the more dire prophets claim a mere 25 years.
4: Whatever the figures, one thing is certain. As the situation becomes more urgent, some of those looking for new reserves are not going to let anything stand
5: in their way. The year is 1998. We're at a drilling site on the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains. Okay,
4: start her up! Start her up! Chunky? Yes, sir? What are the chances of that well getting down another 50 feet by noon? I don't know, boss. That's pretty solid stuff we're drilling through now. I don't understand this. Not in all my 42 years in this business as a company geologist told me to drill halfway up a mountain instead of on the low ground. He seems pretty confident. He's a young, smart aleck, if you ask me. He's quite right. You mean in head? Yeah. But he went to college. I'd get on the back of that rig, Shocky, and take it as fast as you can. But remember, under no circumstances do I want any more delays. Morning, Milo. Morning, John. Coffee's on.
2: Uh-huh.
4: Everything underway okay today? How can you be so cheerful when we've only got less than a week left and no sign of oil?
2: Less than
3: a week?
4: Five days, to be exact. I got a call from headquarters last night. They have decided against renewing the lease on this land. Oh, you're crazy. I know how much oil there is under that mountain. Well, John, forgive me, but you seem to be the only one still under the illusion that there's anything at all down there. We've drilled ten dry holes over the past two years, ten dusters. And all of them have been based on your so-called. Calculations. That's right, because headquarters always pulled a pipe before we got down far enough. Do you have any idea how much drilling costs go up when you get down past the second mile? Milo, I'm going to make you a little wager. How many feet do you think the boys can take it down today? I asked Sharky for 50 by noon. That I will bet you $100 that by noon, we've stuck oil. A <laughs> hundred bucks. How far down are we now? As of last night at quitting time, it was... 19,967 feet. Okay. I'll make that bet even more specific. I say that by the time we reach 19,980 feet, we'll be into the biggest pool of boys you ever saw. Well, it's only 13 more feet. That's right. Is it a bet, Milo? Well, uh... Mr. Hawkins. Yeah. Miss I think we've hit something. What? We've hit an air pocket. Are you sure? I think that's what it is. The rock bit's me to not meeting any resistance. None at all? No, sir. Are you holding in position? Yes, sir. Good. Get rid of this cap. Keep the rig going, but wait till I give you a signal. I want to get company headquarters on the phone. Now. Yes, sir. Oh, well, Milo. I think you just saved yourself a hundred bucks. I want headquarters to put this over the intercom. When this geyser goes, everybody in that whole building is going to hear it. What? What was that? Sounded like the rig. The rig. It stopped. What's the matter? What's... What's happened? Shocky, what's gone wrong? I, I don't know. Well, why did you stop the rig? Something weird is happening, boss. What? What are you talking about? Well, there was this, uh... I, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. The rotor was kicking up rock dust. You know, that yellowish granite we've been drilling through. And then all of a sudden, well, it changed color. Changed color? Yeah. And for that, you stopped the rig? Well... Oh, now, I... wait a minute, Milo. Chalky, you uh, said the dust changed color to what? Well, I think it was kind of... Reddish. Ah, well, it sounds like we may have hit a stratum of clay. So where is this red dust? Let me see it. Well, now that's what I'm trying to tell you. It isn't here anymore. It was in my hands. I was holding it in my hands, looking at it. And it just disappeared. You mean the wind blew it away? No. My hands were cupped. There wasn't any wind. It just evaporated. It just evaporated? Disappeared. Yes, sir. Now I've got two nuts to deal with. As a scientist, I'd be rather curious to have a look at some of this dust. There ought to be still some of this stuff in the hole here. If I can just turn this pipe. Here we are. I, I don't know if I'd touch it, Mr. Perk. What if it's not safe? That looks harmless enough to me. Yeah, but you don't know. That's from nearly four miles down in the earth. It could be almost anything. That's why I had him stop the rig. I think my first guess was right. It seems to be clay of some sort. It's very odd, though. What would it? There'd be a seam of clay that deep in the earth. And the kind of rock formation we've been cutting through. Look. Look there. See what I mean? Hey, what happened to it? It just vanishes. That's what I was telling. Pocky, bring me some kind of small container, will you? A, a, a plastic bag. Anything so long as it's airtight. Okay. Why airtight? I think it must be the fresh air that's causing this stuff, whatever it is, to disintegrate. I, I want to get a sample of it down at Boulder, the university there, and have it analyzed. Well, this is the only airtight bag I can find, Mr. Perth. What is it? Well, it's from my lunch pail. wife put my sandwich in it this morning. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to do. Milo, will you give me a ride? Well, what about the well? I think we'd better leave the rig off until we find out what this stuff is. It's past
6: one
4: o'clock. We've lost the whole morning. How much longer is this friend of yours going to take? My love, Professor Anderson is a very thorough person. He'll be finished when he's finished. This is ridiculous. You saw that doctor disintegrate with your own eyes. So... Stuff comes up from the center of the earth and acts weird. Why not? If I was down there, I'd I'd act weird. It doesn't raise your curiosity at all. Ah. Professor Anderson. Gentlemen. What did you find out? Were you able to analyze the powder? Uh, Mr. Hawkins, is that right? Yes, sir. You can call me Milo. Milo? How do you enjoy working with this practical joker here? Professor, what... You see, Mr. Hawkins... Mr. Perk here was one of my more intelligent students, so I assume he must be attempting humor when he comes around bothering a busy old man with a handful of powdered tile. Tile? That's right, John. What you asked me to drop everything for and analyze is nothing but common tile, such as one might use to roof a house. What's so special about it? What's so special about it, Professor? Professor? is that it comes from the bottom of a well shaft nearly four miles down inside a mountain. Oh, I see. So you weren't pulling my leg. Why, why did you ask me to keep the sample in an airtight container? It made my examination much more difficult. Because when that dust is exposed to fresh air, it disintegrates. Disintegrates? So, uh, Jean, if that's true, do you realize how old this material could be? Your find must be investigated at once. Well, there's just one problem, Professor. How would you get down there? I don't know. I know the site must be excavated. Uh, This powder could well be far older than all our previous estimates. It could be all that remains of a civilization we never even knew existed. Uh, Which reminds me, John, I must keep this sample and run dating tests on it. Of course. Now, look. Our company has a deadline. If we don't find oil, we got better be off that land by the end of the week. Oh, but you can't
2: continue to drill for oil,
4: son. Don't you realize that by continuing to drill, you might destroy an invaluable crew to our past? I don't care about the past, Professor. I care about the future. And I don't see that the excavation of one more prehistoric Indian dwelling or whatever... There's going to be any difference. But getting to that oil, if it's there, it will. The problem still is how to reach this site.
2: Uh, uh, Just a minute.
4: You're drilling up near Pine Creek, aren't you? Yeah, three miles up the mountain from there. Well, and I think there might be a way. There used to be a big silver mine at Pine Creek, remember? Ah, that's right. It was abandoned at the turn of the century, 95 years ago. Yeah, but, but the last shaft, the miners dug, struck a cave system. Of course. You took us down a field trip. Now, let me see. I should have some maps around here someplace. Ah, yes. Ah, here we are. Ah, this is the one I'm looking for. A cutaway view of the mountain. Now, <clears throat> you can see here how extensive the cave system is. Now, where exactly is the location of your drilling site? Ah, right. Here, ah, yeah. there you see, trace line straight down twenty thousand feet. That's your depth, uh-huh. ah? And it would place you here, the very deepest bowels of the mountain. But here you see the cave starting at the base of the mine shaft, which is already at the base of the mountain, and you give yourself a head start of nearly fifteen thousand feet. Uh. And, and look. Here's a branch of the cave which comes practically to the point our drill has reached. Well, we could crawl there in a matter of hours. Now, just a minute, John. You seem to be forgetting who pays your salary. Milo, look, it's now one o'clock. Give me until starting time tomorrow, nine o'clock. What do we lose? A half a day. Well, I think perhaps you better allow Mr. Perk to attempt the descent. My analysis showed traces of a rather strange substance. An adhesive, I believe. Why was it strange? Because it was entirely synthetic. And no primitives we're familiar with could possibly have known about it.
5: I'm reminded of an old story about a cabin boy on a clipper ship. It seems he was always losing
4: things. One day, the captain asked him to clean his favorite clock. But when he asked to have it back... The boy couldn't produce it. The captain flew into a rage. I suppose it's lost, he said. Oh, no, sir, replied the cabin boy. I know exactly where it is. It fell out of my hands as I was cleaning it. And it's at the bottom of the ocean. The characters in our story know where something is, too. And like the captain's clock, the only problem is how to get to it. We shall dig deeper into all of this when I return with Act Two. Once
2: in a while you find someone who
4: knows what to do And that's someone you can talk
3: to Once in a while you find someone who cares about you Someone
5: you can talk to For life and health insurance that puts your individual needs first, talk to your life underwriter. Get advice, personal service, and that special expertise in making the future secure. Your life underwriter. Only a phone call away. We all need someone to talk to once in a while. Someone to tell our dreams to help make those dreams come true. Your life underwriter wants to see you smile.
2: A message from the National Association of Life Underwriters. Are you in the mood for seafood? If so, then you'll enjoy Finn and Claws' tempting luncheon menu featuring delicious French specialties like coquille Saint-Jacques made with delicately seasoned seafoods in wine sauce or shrimp creole or shrimp denise. Of course, the fish served at Finn and Claws selected fresh daily, so the flavor is outstanding. Finn and Claws featuring French cuisine at lunchtime. You can enjoy entrees like veal normand, beef marchand divan, brochettes of beef, or chicken divan, as well as this special of the day. And don't pass up Finn and Claw's soup and sandwich combination, a lunchtime feature at $3. Remember, Finn and Claw at 7225 Northwestern Avenue is open Monday through Friday for lunch, every day for dinner. For Reservations call 274-7500. That's 274-7500. Finn and Claw, their menu's a passport to dining adventure. Remember that singer-pianist Tony Zito is now playing Tuesday through Saturday nights at Finn and Claw.
4: many things which distinguish man from the so-called lower orders of the animal kingdom. And geologist John Perch is giving us a good demonstration of one of them right now. For man is the only animal who will deliberately set off to confront the unknown. John Perch has bought a few precious hours from a grudging Milo Hawkins, and with Sharkey as his assistant, is descending into the mountain. Sharkey. Um, Careful, the ledge isn't too wide. Is there room for both of us? Just barely. What time is it, Sharky? Uh, almost midnight. Sharky. Huh? There it is. The end of the tunnel. Hand me the bag with the drill and the explosives. Here we go. While I'm drilling, a hole for the dynamite you get out the oxygen pack. Then inflate one of those balloons to seal off the tunnel behind us. We don't want any fresh air getting into whatever is behind that rock. The tunnel's all sealed off, Mr. Burke. Good. Charge is ready. Now let's just back up around this corner here. Yeah, okay. okay. It'll just take a second to hook up the wires. Mr. Burke. Yeah. Are we sure we want to do this? I mean, are we sure we want to know what's back there? I'm a scientist, Sharky. Yes, sir. Oh, I. Push the plunger. Okay.
6: <laughs>
4: can you see anything? <laughs> Not with this flashlight. No. Wait. Through the dust, it. Looks like there's a chamber of some sort. <coughs> Come on. Let's get back in there and set up a light. Yeah. here. Yeah. Give me the light. You... <coughs> you crank up the generator. Okay. Okay, turn it on. Good Lord. I don't get it, Mr. Perch. We must have taken the wrong turn. This isn't a prehistoric dwelling. It's somebody's house. We... Didn't take any wrong turns, Sharky. Well, look. See in the ceiling there? It's the nose of our rock pit from the drilling rig. Yeah, but look at this. A stove, a sink, even a dishwasher. Yeah. And look, look in here. A dining room, rugs, a table, chairs. They look like they came right out of a department store. I don't like this. I wish we'd brought guns or something. What if this is some kind of criminal hideout? Four miles underground. Well, we don't know. Maybe it's a secret government project, a bomb shelter or something. But how was it built? I don't know. But there's got to be a reason why it's here. Let's have a look around. Maybe there's another way in which the survey charts don't show. Did you find anything, Mr. Perk? Nothing. How about you? Nothing. Fantastic, this. Our house is encased in solid bedrock. But I saw bedrooms, a bathroom, even a TV set. Everything just like people lived here. Except that there are no signs of life anywhere. Hey, look at this. Glass in the windows, not even cracked. And curtains. I wonder if the plumbing works. Well, it's only one way to find out, isn't it? <laughs>
3: ah!
4: Hey, the stuff that came out of the tap... It's black. Black? What? what is it? Let me take that. No, Mr. don't. What I thought. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this, Jockey. It is perfectly good crude oil. Oil? Yep. I don't believe what I'm seeing. A ranch house in the middle of the earth with oil coming out of the faucet. It's like magic. I think there may be a more rational explanation, at least for the oil. Do you see any stairs leading to the basement? Hey, I saw some stairs down the hallway. Come on, then. Let's follow these pipes. Right. Mm-hmm. The should be over on that far wall. Uh, what's that? I don't know. I, I kept in something. Okay. The whole basement floor seems to be covered with it. Shine your light. There. Yeah. Hey, look. It's oil. The whole floor is three inches deep in all. You see, I was right all along. There is oil in this mountain. We were right on target. And the only thing that stands between us and a gold behind is this house. <laughs> <laughs> this solves everything. At last, we have proof that the oil exists. The company can go ahead and take a new lease on the land, and we'll have the time to try to find an answer to the mystery of this house. We can leave the generator here. We've got to get back and stop Milo starting a rig-up. What time is it? Uh, 2.57 a.m. Uh, we should just about make it. We'll inflate another balloon to fuel a passage behind us before removing the first one. Are we all set to go? All set. Wait. Wait a minute. What's this? What? This door. I I didn't see it before. Did, did you check it out? No, I thought you did. Well, we'd better have a look. Uh, Mr. Perk, this place gives me the creeps. I got this funny feeling. Why don't we just leave well enough alone? Help me move the light over. What kind of thing could survive down here without air? Mr. Perk, I'm frightened. Now, don't open this door. Get out of the way! Uh, what is it? A library. A library? Only a library. Room filled with books. You're not afraid of them, are you? I'm, I'm going to have a look. Maybe they'll provide some kind of clue. The owner is obviously a man of refinement and culture. Complete works of Shakespeare, Milton, Plato's Dialogue, Aristotle, Dante, Plutarch. Yeah, the more recent authors—Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Hemingway. Yeah, this isn't offering us much in the way of clues, huh? Did you find something? This reclining chair. My father-in-law's got one just like it in his den. Oh, <laughs> exactly like it. I, well, I mean, it's a different color, but it's the same model. Something. Whoever owns these books is obviously interested in history. Here's an entire case devoted to it Herodotus, Tacitus, Livy. (laughs) Arranged in chronological order. Hollinship's Chronicles, Gibbon's French Revolution. Who's this? Who? Someone named D. V. Davis wrote A History of the World. I thought I never heard of him, Sharky. Well, don't look at me. I never heard of half of those other guys you mentioned. Davis. Strange. Every other author on the shelf is familiar, but him. Uh, Mr. Perk, you, you, you remember that feeling I had before? Well, it's coming back. I think we ought to go. Now wait a minute. History of the World by David Vladimir Davis, in nine volumes. Eight volumes here. Well, there's a space. The ninth volume is missing, and the eighth volume covers. Oh, Lord. Sharky, you don't see the ninth volumes of this set lying around anywhere, do you? No. Why? Did you see it anywhere lying around the house? <laughs> I don't know. I'll I just. Try to remember. Well, there were some books on a table in the living room, and I've got to find it. Yeah, but the time. It's after three. But the time. We've got to find the ninth volumes of this set. Why? Because. I am holding the eighth volume in my hand. I can feel its weight. I know it's real. It's not an illusion. The eighth volume of a nine-volume set of books on the history of the world. Our world as we know it and have lived it. And this eighth volume goes from the year 1815, the Battle of Waterloo, to the year 2000. But this is 1998. What is this guy, fortune teller? Don't you see? There's still another entire volume to the set. I think I'm beginning to understand. Hey, wait, wait. What's that noise? Miss Burke, the house is beginning to shake. It's stopping. What was it? I'm not sure. But if we really are sitting on top of an oil field, it's. Well, the unstable situation. The vibrations from the dynamite must have disturbed things. we got to get out of here. First, we have got to find that book. Why? Why? What's so important about some old fortune teller's book? That's not it, Charlie. That's not it at all. Don't you realize what we've discovered? This is... What's that smell? What? That smell. Hey. It's gas. There's gas escaping from somewhere. That explosion must open the leak in a gas pocket. Quick! Put this book in our bag back later with masks to search for the ninth volume. Hi, Mr. Pertz. There's daylight. At last. There's someone there at the mine entrance. My huh? oh, God, it looks like Professor Anderson. John! John, is that you? Yeah. We're, we're coming, Professor. But, uh, oh, What are you doing here? (coughs) I must know what you found down there. I've been up the entire night running dating tests on that tile sample. At first, I couldn't believe it. But now I know there can be no doubt. That powder you brought me is over 12 billion years old. But we know the world's only 4.5 billion years old. Well, I mean what I heard Mr. Hawkins say once. Yes, that's what we've always thought, Mr. Sharkey, but evidently we've been wrong. Now tell me what you found. At the bottom of our well hole is a house. Even more perfectly preserved than the ruins of Pompeii that every modern appliance we're familiar with, from electric can openers to reclining chairs. It's just like the houses in the suburb where I live. Only difference is it is from a civilization so far in the past. Until now, not even a trace of it's been known. But what about all those books, Mr. Perk? The Shakespeare and all? How'd they get there? Shakespeare? That's the most incredible thing of all, Professor. That 12 billion-year-old civilization was ours. The same names. Same events. Same people fighting the same wars. Making the same inventions. Creating the same masterpieces are probably making the same mistakes. Oh, so that's why you wanted the ninth volume of that history. That's right, Sharky. Because whatever fatal mistake they made, whatever happened to cause their extinction, is going to happen to us. Unless we can discover what it was and avoid it. The ninth volume? There isn't time to explain now, Professor. We've got to get back to camp and stop Milo before he turns on that rig. <laughs> In our beginning is our end, said T.S. Eliot. All living things duplicate themselves in reproduction with a phenomenal precision. So is it not at least possible, then, that nature repeats itself on a larger scale, too? In fact, on the largest scale
3: of all. I shall return shortly with our final act. When you have power-hungry devices, you need powerful batteries. So True Value Hardware Stores suggests Ever-Ready Alkaline Power Cells, the batteries that are designed to last longer and work harder in devices that really strain a battery. Hi, Pat Summerall will tell you that Ever-Ready Alkaline Power Cell batteries provide extra power for radios, shavers, or any device you use often or for long periods of time. And they hold their power for months when not in use. So they're perfect for calculators, cameras, and cassette tape recorders. And now you can get a two-pack of D-sized Ever-Ready Alkaline Power Cell batteries for just $1.37 from True Value Hardware Stores. Or get a four-pack of AA-sized Power Cells for just two seventeen. dollars Replace all your old batteries in your power-hungry devices. Now, with Ever-Ready Alkaline Power Cell batteries from participating True Value Hardware Stores and home centers. True Value. More than just a name. It's
5: their way of doing business. And tell them Pat Summerall sent you. WBBM Chicago. Here's a tip from your Better Business Bureau. If you're considering a program of study at a vocational school, here are some useful pointers. Look for information about different schools that offer training for the career you have in mind. Instead of relying only on school information, talk to students who are familiar with various schools. They can give you their impressions about the schools from personal experience. If possible, get in touch with large companies that employ people in the field covered by the school you're considering. Ask their opinion of the school, whether they would hire the graduates. And before you sign any contract with the vocational school, be sure to visit it. Check the facilities, equipment and check the teaching personnel. Talk to a few of the students enrolled at the school so that you won't be disappointed once you've registered. Let their experience be your guide. A tip from your Better Business Bureau.
4: We catch but glimpses of our past. The legend of Atlantis lives on. The mysteries of Stonehenge and the giant statues of Easter Island continue to baffle us. The most advanced and sophisticated civilizations are represented by mere shards of pottery stumbled on by accident. For all our research, there is still behind us a vast unknown. But now, a discovery, fantastic, terrifying evidence of a former civilization identical to our own a civilization whose end was so cataclysmic no trace had ever been discovered until now. Well, thank goodness we got here before you started that rig. John, I've got a bone to pick There's you? no time for that. Sharky? Yes, sir? Get out there and get the rig started. Oh, no, wait, you've got to listen to us. I've got a better idea, John. Why don't you listen to me for a change? Oh. I got a little phone call last night from headquarters. You remember them, don't you? They wanted to know how things were going. Understandably, they're getting a little anxious, considering the fact that we've got only four days before our lease here is up. And you can imagine my chagrin when I had to tell them the rig wasn't even running, that my geologist, who's supposed to be telling me where to drill, had told me to stop so he could go down and nose around some prehistoric Indian hut. That's not what's down there. I don't care what's down there. My job is to drill for oil. You know who's arriving today? Sid Dobbs. Sid Dobbs. That's right. The company executive vice president. Who wants to know what the heck is going on here? He's firing up personally to take over the operation. Well, if you would let me get a word in, Edgeworth, I can tell you what's going on. All I want to know is why we haven't struck oil. Well, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. There is oil down there. We saw it. You saw it. I stuck my finger in it. I tasted it. It's there, right where I said it would be. The drill is no more than 20 feet above the strike at this very moment. Well, then, let's get it going and have that oil coming up for Mr. Dobbs so he won't have our heads in a sling. Charlie? Yes, sir? No, wait a minute. You can't start the rig, not until we've had a chance to go back down there. Go back down? What for? Milo, what we've discovered, it wasn't... Well, it wasn't what we expected... There's a house down there, all right, but it's modern. I mean, well, not modern exactly. It's 12 billion years old. But Shirky, what's he talking about? I know, I know, it sounds incredible. But Professor Anderson ran dating tests on that powder we took him. And it's 12 billion years old. Ah. So you found a modern 12-billion-year-old house. But the important thing is the book. That's why we've got to go back down. Oh, I see. What? The ninth volume. It's a history of the world from the year 2000 on. John, I'm doing my best to stay with you, but you aren't making it easy for me. Milo, now listen. There is a house down there from a civilization that existed 12 billion years ago. That was ours. It was us. Don't you see what that means? We're being given the chance to look into the future. I see. Sharky? Yes, sir? You've been awful quiet. Yeah, I guess so. You were down there with Mr. Perk, were not you? Yes. You went all the way with him? You saw everything he saw? Yes. And you saw this house he's talking about? No. No, I didn't. What? Sarky, you didn't see a 12-billion-year-old house that looks just like ours, that has a set of books, that's going to tell us what's going to happen? No, sir, I didn't. I didn't see any of that. That's what I thought. No! Sarky, what are you saying? Milo, look in this bag. We brought up the eighth volume of that set. See, look, it goes from 1815 to the year 2000. Now, now, will you believe me? There's nothing in here but a pile of dust. What? Oh, good grief, we're in such a hurry. I must not have sealed the container properly. Look, Milo, you've got to believe me. Twelve more hours is all I need. But we've got to go back down there. Yeah. hello, Hawkins here. He has? Okay, I'll be right over. The company plane has just landed with Mr. Dobbs. I'm going to meet him, and I want that rig in full operation by the time we return. Milo, listen to me. Remember when we were at Anderson's lab? He said his analysis of the powder showed traces of a substance that primitive man couldn't have known about. Oh, yes. Yes, I meant to tell you. Professor Anderson called yesterday, right after you and Sharky had gone down into the mine. He'd run another test and discovered what it was. Doesn't that convince you I'm telling the truth? It was mayonnaise, John. Mayonnaise? That's right. Remember? We used a sandwich bag from Sharky's lunch pail. Mayonnaise. Sharky. Hey, Mr. Perk, please, let me get by. Why did you lie? i got to get the rig started. Are you crazy? Do you realize what we'll be destroying? Mr. Perk, I don't want to talk about it. What are you afraid of? Going back down there, we'll run hoses down to pump out the gas. Anyway, you don't have to go if you don't want to. I can find somebody else. I know it's risky, but it's too important not to take a chance. Mr. Perk, please let me go. Not until you tell me why you like to Milo. Don't you see what this discovery could mean? The chance to look into the future. The chance to avoid making the same mistake twice. How? What? How are we going to avoid it? Don't you want to know your own fate? No. I don't want to know. An entire civilization may perish because of your cowardice. Why won't you support me? Didn't you see that house? Of course I saw it. Did you take a good look at it? What are you getting at, Shockey? What's the matter? It's a modern house. So? It's not ultra-modern. It's not some weird futuristic contraption filled with gadgets we've never seen. It's modern. It's contemporary. Don't you see what that means? This is as far as we're coming. This is the end of the line. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen soon. And it's probably too late to stop it. But we can try if we know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to know. So you won't support me. When Sid Dobbs (sighs) arrives, you won't back me up. ha! Hi, Mr. Perk. You'll think I'm a raving lunatic. Sharky, why isn't that rig going yet? Hello, man. Hello, John. Hello, Sid. Mr. Dobbs, I'm sorry. I, I gave orders for the rig to be running. It. That's all right, Milo. Forget it. The rig isn't going on. It isn't? No. We've decided to suspend operations altogether. Suspend operations? Our lease is up in four days. It'll take us that long to pack up and be out of here. As far as I'm concerned, the sooner we never see this place again, the better. Sid, uh, when you say suspend operations, you mean you intend to pull the pipe? We sure can't afford to leave it behind. You can't do that. What? Why not? Removing the pipe would expose the hole to the fresh air and... Well, there's something down there that would be destroyed. By fresh air? Uh, Sid, we struck some old clay rock yesterday. That's why the rig isn't going. John insisted on exploring in a nearby cave. Ted, you have to listen to me. Sharky's right. There is oil down there. We're within 20 feet of it. Are you asking me to start the rig going again? No, no, no. I'm asking you to take a new lease on the land and hold off making the strike until I found... until I've completed my explorations. John, I remind you that we've been listening to you for two years. There's no more time. It's all run out. You are also sitting on top of something infinitely more important than oil. And it's going to be destroyed. John, I think you need some sleep. That's your problem. Now, wait a minute. Just a minute, Marlowe. I'm curious about these continued illusions, John. (laughs) I might give you one more chance. I will accept your considered judgment as a rational scientist that the oil is there and hold off drilling. If you'll tell me what's down there that's so important. (laughs) My judgment is a rational scientist. Oh, never mind, Sid, never mind. Go ahead and pull the pipe. Okay. Well, have the men pack up. We'll pull the pipe and dismantle the rig in the morning. John, why didn't you just tell Mr. Dobbs what it was you'd seen? He wouldn't have believed me, Professor Anderson, Not, not without Sharky's corroboration. So, you're going to start pulling the pipe in the morning in a golden opportunity and we'll be lost forever. No, not exactly. Oh? Well, a chance remains. Surely you don't intend to stop them at gunpoint. No, no. I'm going to try going down again. She said there was gas leaking, that the ground was beginning to shift. We can wear masks against the gas, and as for the shifting, well, we'll just have to take that risk. You said we. That's why I came to you. Professor, I need someone to go with me. It's a two-man job. I I, I don't know who else to turn to. I know you're... I mean... Oh, <laughs> I know what you're trying to say. On a mission of such importance, uh, I wouldn't hesitate. Not for one minute. Then then you'll come with me. Yes, of course I will. Good, we've got to start at once. There's barely enough time as it is. Sharky? I can't say I'll be sorry to see the last of this place. Something about it always did give me the willies. That you better lock the gate for the last time. Oh, okay, Mister Hawkins. Hey, wait a minute. What's that? Why? What? The stuff on your boots—the black stuff. Why that? That's the oil. Oil. Where'd it come from? Well, that's what I was trying to tell you all along. The oil it's down there. Miss Perk and I saw it. And we waited through it. Sharky, get Mister Dobbs from the office. Why? We've got to start up that rig. There is oil, Sharky. Oil. you know what that means? Ha! <laughs> our future's golden. Here. Here it is, Professor. This is amazing. A house never in every detail. Exactly like our own. From a duplicate civilization that inhabited the Earth... Twelve billion years ago. Oh, how much it could teach us! Wait a minute. Sharky said he thought he'd seen some books in the living room. This way. Oh look! Oh, there on the table. Yeah, this is it. The History of the World by D.V. Davis, Volume Nine. Do you realize what this will mean, Professor? When we open this book. Yes. I wonder what it is, John, that we're to learn about ourselves from ourselves. What's that? <laughs> Professor, they started the drill.
6: The whole house! They've it, got our teeth
5: a legend in classical mythology about the Sibyl, a prophetess who lived appropriately enough to our story in a cave.
4: She offered to sell nine prophetic books to Tarquin the Proud, the last of Rome's legendary kings. He refused, for he thought her price was too high. So she burned three of the books and offered him the remaining six for the same price. Again Tarquin refused, and again Sibyl burned three of the precious volumes. Finally, he bought the last three for the price of the original nine. But because of his stingy short-sightedness,
5: mankind lost forever his chance to know what the future holds. I shall return shortly.
4: Take your contact. Take it now. Give your code to contact. I'm going to change your mind about nighttime cold medicine. Of all major medicines, only one works up to 12 hours against the cloggy cold virus symptoms that keep you awake. Only contact. One capsule's relief stays with you all through a long night's sleep, no matter what cold virus attacks. Only contact. Give your cold to contact.
3: Take only as directed. Let's put the brakes on burglars. They like to work fast, but out of sight keep hedges and shrubs around your house trimmed. Burglars hide in them. A window entry by a burglar is a whole lot less inviting if the shrubbery has been cut back. Standard double-hung windows can be made more secure with just a drill and a few nails. Make sure your family and guests know where the nails are located in bedroom windows that might have to serve as fire exits. Crime resistance message from the American Legion and this radio station.
5: what fate has in store for us.
4: That would probably depend on whether or not we had the ability to act on that knowledge and to alter the impending course of events. But would it be a simple matter of avoiding a single fatal mistake? Or would we discover a future as complex as human nature itself and as unchangeable Our cast included Michael Wager, Court Benson, and Robert Dryden.
5: The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. And now, a preview of our next tale. Why? Why wasn't I on this morning of all mornings? Why? Why? It's a miracle, darling. It's a miracle. (laughs) a miracle. But that doesn't answer the question. Why was I saved? Five people are dead. The three in the plane, Mr. Fieldings, and a woman named Mrs. Jane Gray. Why was I saved? The people in the plane died because their aircraft underwent some malfunction. Mr. Fieldings and Mrs. Gray, they they just happened to be there. I should have been there, too. Why wasn't I? Why was I saved? Because Dick Harrison called you at exactly 8 a.m., the split second you were about to leave. Radio Mystery Theater was sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure
4: in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams...
3: just heard the end of downtown bankers' hours. Northwest Federal Savings Time has come to the loop. We've just opened a new savings center at 72 East Randolph, just west of Michigan. We're open 63 hours a week, 7.30 to 6.30 on weekdays, and 9.30 to 5.30 on Saturdays. That's plenty of time to bank before work starts and without leaving work early on payday. We're celebrating the grand opening of our downtown office at all six Northwest Federal Savings Centers with over thirty brand name gifts, free or for special low prices when you deposit two hundred and fifty dollars or more. So join us anytime while the celebration continues and help celebrate <coughs> the end of Downtown Bankers Hours. It's a week. CBS News Thompson Clark says he intends to cooperate with American prosecutors and is ready to come back to the United States to testify in court trials.
1: All right, from 1977 is that what the, is that the right year, Matt? 19, 1977. That was the ninth from CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Uh, before we before we dive into this one, Matt, I just got to say, prior to, to joining joining you via Zoom, I burned my finger. I've got a splitting headache. I'm starting to think. We've angered the the radio drama gods by by, by veering outside <laughs> the respected zone of nineteen thirty, whatever, to nineteen sixty-two. And so I don't know. I might not make it through to the end of this one. If if things keep uh keep increasing exponentially, I might suffer more dire consequences. But I'm gonna try to power through because as I've said in the past over the last two years, and just you know, to, to you off the podcast, uh, you know, late night messaging and such, uh, I I really have kind of an axe to grind with CBS Radio Mystery Theater. But there are a handful of episodes that I, I hold in high regard, despite my, my objections to a lot of the, the structure of the show. And one of them is called The Prisoner of the Machines with John Lithgow. And the other one is this one, the ninth volume, which you brought to my attention a while back. And we decided, you know, we're doing our, our detours this month, our, our, our October spooky detours. and. This one is not, you know, spooky in a traditional sense, but it's spooky in the, in the sense that it's reminding us what happens when you try to warn the world about something that is glaringly obvious. But we have to think about this: the quarterly profits. We, you know, this company mm-hmm. has deadlines, and I'm not concerned about the past. I'm concerned about the future. One, probably the most ironic line in this, uh, because obviously capitalists, big and small, are not concerned with the past or the future. They're concerned with uh, short-term profits. And that, that ends up being our, our, our collective undoing in this episode, because we've got this guy who sees all the writing on the wall. He, he knows that we're, we're currently living in volume eight of a nine-volume series, and that we could maybe change things if people would only listen to him. But what happens, Matt?
0: You know, it's the same thing as uh loading up Twitter every day and seeing uh, oh by the way the largest ever uh, glacier has has melted. The large, you know, uh, an iceberg the size of Texas has uh, has collapsed and the you know. Oh, but it's fine. Don't don't worry about it. You know, that's that happens in the ninth volume. So, you know, as much as the 70s were very much and and a thing maybe we'll bring this up in a minute. Um a thing I find really interesting is there's a couple episodes in the CBS Radio Mystery Theater that take on this very 70s like the energy crisis right like when you know this is post 73 post the opec crisis like oil is on everyone's mind which leads to like fears of peak oil right and like the sort of proto early kind of scientific consensus on climate change is starting to crystallize where often it will you know get thought of as you know global cooling or, or there's going to be another ice age which is just you know they see what's happening but they're like trying to figure out what it is so the whatever it is is slightly off point being um you know here we have one that an episode that is very clearly interested in like the ecological issue that we still face today but also that was becoming kind of apparent then and here we are we're we're in the same place you know the the it's interesting they they put this episode i think they say they're in 1998 uh 77 episode airs takes place in 98 you know just Fast forward everything thirty years or so, you know, here we are, same, same, same place.
1: <laughs> John Carpenter made Escape from New York in eighty one, I think, and that was set in the the far future of ninety seven. So, yeah, things were things were uh, changing much more rapidly in those days. Because yeah, you could just look forward fifteen years and think, well, probably going to be the end of the world in fifteen or twenty years.
0: <laughs> people knew, people knew. You know, I, I taught Blade Runner in my class this week. And, you know, it famously opens up Los Angeles night, uh, 2019. And I'll be like, okay, this is the 2019 of that movie. But like, but
1: you know, I mean, (laughs) yeah. So maybe, um, I definitely want to come back around to some of the politics and social commentary of this episode, but, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't go into why I generally don't care for CBS radio mystery theater. And I'll, I'll talk about it. I'll frame it as, um, the way it's structured. So, something I've brought up a couple times, I think, uh, the last two years of us discussing old-time radio programs, is um, our, my fondness for the Twilight Zone and how much I, I resent CBS making Rod Serling switch the Twilight Zone to, to a one-hour format in season four. And I liken CBS Radio Mystery Theater, in a sense, to that sort of bastardized, you know, iteration of the Twilight Zone when you, you know you had to. It's like it's like a guy who makes pizzas. If you stretch your dough too thin, it's not going to hold the toppings. It's kind of a dumb analogy, but that's what I that's what I like in uh, both the season four of of the original Twilight Zone and this sort of you know radio drama revival series from the late 70s. I think there are a lot of stories from the this program's run that could have worked so much better if they had just condensed it down to 15 or 30 minutes. And I, for the life of me, I just can't understand why there's this arbitrary standard of like, oh, we're doing a drama program. It has to be a 60 minute format because I think a lot of shows suffer from having to stretch concepts and plots too thin.
0: I mean, you know, and I don't know the history super well, but I can imagine it's something like the uniqueness of CBS radio mystery theater in history, right. That like, and this is another thing that's crazy to think about. Uh, the way that discursively the show is always talked about is, Oh, it's a revival of old time radio, right? The, the, the creator of CBS radio mystery theater is Hyman Brown, who famously was the creator of inner sanctum mysteries. Right. So there's a direct connection to OTR. Um, like as far, like, not just, you know, some, some, uh, an advisor on the show, but like the writer's room, the like production staff. They're like, they're the same here. Right. But I find it really interesting, right? It, this is a revival of of the you know the old days of radio. Um, uh, uh, the first episode of CBS Radio Mystery Theater is seventy four. The supposed last broadcast of OTR was only twelve years before this. Yeah. This is a real. This is you know we've talked about this elsewhere, but uh, uh, how fast things were changing, sort of back then, right? A um, sort of a, a social theorist, a, a cultural critic. I really like Mark Fisher has written a lot about this the idea that you know somewhere around the 80s and 90s 70s 80s and 90s basically like kind of cultural production stopped right and fisher has this very explicit kind of marxist reading of it right it's a you know uh, uh, we have sort of the 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 modern modernization is happening in sort of decades of fashion fashion you know sort of new commodities coming out but like we get to this kind of end of history moment and we're just we're stuck we're we're still in We're still there. It's still the 90s. It's still there. And so I find this really interesting that you listen to these programs um, that are supposed to be a throwback revival to something that happened 12 years ago. And if you watch anything from 12 years ago now, like maybe there's a slight aesthetic change in like a digital camera thing that you can tell in the lighting or something. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's exactly the same. So all of it, uh, you know, complaining about, you know, how much culture sucks now, but all of which is also, I wonder what that moment in 74 was like. And if it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, you, you got an hour, we'll give you an hour. You need to fill an hour because radio is in this weird intermediary zone where it's very still it's, you know, uh, uh, uh scripted programming is dead. Um, we got local programming, we got music we have talk. We have yet to really have radio be taken over by sort of right-wing talk radio, which really happens in the 80s after deregulation and after Mm -hmm. they do away with the, I forget the name of the act where you have to give like both sides or whatever that like just spurns on Rush Limbaugh and everybody else, right? So you got this weird zone in the 70s where like you could kind of do anything. And so part of me wonders if the hour is like, just this weird happenstance of the moment they they had to fill an hour. And yeah, you, you,
1: you hear some of these episodes and they're really stretched thin. Um, Which is such a shame because you could do like what, you know, Rod Serling, when he had the 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 post-Twilight Zone uh, night gallery program, I think he knew a lot of those weren't hour long stories. And so they would always do like the mini story at the end right, of those. Right, right. I just think he could have done something like this or something like that rather. Like every every sixty minute block could have been like a anthology, you know, maybe he had two episodes or two stories, or even three, like three kind of very uh very short stories. And I think it's just it's just sad that that Hyman Brown seems to have wanted to make it a revival in like in like the worst possible sense. He you know, there's a lot of dialogue you hear in these CBS radio mystery theater programs, that it just sounds like like people are talking like it's nineteen fifties right right why why not make these like modern stories where they reflect you know modern you know forms of speech and vernacular and all that why does it have to you know something we've we've ranted about is that there's no reason this form of storytelling has to be confined to like that mid-century moment you know we could be we we could be allocating airtime right now to telling stories or historical reenactments or whatever like the sky is really the limit but i think a lot of people think of radio drama as this thing that's just it's frozen in time. It can only be from that original era, or it can only be like an homage to that era. We can't we can't do anything that is of the modern moment. Mm-hmm. And I think the same. I think this was happening with CBS Radio Mystery Theater in the '70s and early '80s, where it was like, with a handful of exceptions, including I would argue this episode that we're talking about today, they were too stuck in the, in trying to make it. Like the like a 40s 50s kind of story, and I don't know how much of that was, you know, I, I I tend to blame Hyman Brown for that, but maybe that's unfair. Maybe maybe the writers just thought this is a form of storytelling that really kind of belongs to that moment, and every every story we tell has to just kind of be stuck there. And I just yeah, I just find it really troubling that they they put that limitation on themselves and didn't make it more of a conscious effort to break out of it and tell more more stories that were of that moment when these were being produced.
0: I mean, with that, another thing that's really interesting to me, right, is this is such a like weird transitory moment between pretentiously like media regimes, let's say, right, where like, you know, the stability of the 30 minute radio program in the golden age or however we want to periodize it is this stable thing that you, you know, sort of expect there's 15 minutes, there's there's 30 minutes, we sort of know what the norm is, right? Um, 20 years later, CBS Radio Mystery Theater. 20 years later, uh, 90s television, Star Trek The Next Generation, the 30 minute sitcom, the hour long cop drama, right? We were exactly in this moment. And I mean this because the other thing that I think we would be remiss to not talk about is this aired every day. Was this it like aired a Monday, Friday? five days a week?
1: <laughs>
2: they Which, had to fill.
0: Feel- five hours a
2: week that's (laughs) crazy that's insane
0: in
1: the classic in the classic radio period that would have been that's the format for like 15 minute serials like exactly or the i love a mystery uh serialized stories which incidentally this story the ninth volume kind of reminds me of i love a mystery sort of mashed up with uh quiet please and that. Mm. oh yeah i like that big picture issues but it sounds like it has sort of the vibe of like doc and reggie like on some adventure somewhere and like oh no we found this tomb where there's the the history of the world you know and it's just it just feels like kind of a weird uh mashup of those two programs um and i don't have much to say about that outside of just pointing it out but uh yeah i don't know i i think that god i didn't even i honestly i didn't know that, that this air i thought there was like a weekly program i didn't realize they were putting out five you know 60 minute episodes a week yeah how could it not how could they, how could you not phone it in with that kind of production schedule that's that's crazy
0: but to your point i think it really shows that like you, you can't do this with radio you, you just you can't do five hours of radio narrative drama a week the the, the form was perfected and you get an hour a week and you you prep it and then you record it and you transcribe it you know whatever else that that was it produced the the apex of what the form became when it was in that mode and now we're in this moment where we're starting to get to like you know, multi-cam, uh, uh, three-camera multi-cam uh, uh, studio comedies, right? Like, which that, Seinfeld, Frasier, Cheers, right? That form perfected, but like, th- but that's not radio. That That's not radio drama. It, radio drama doesn't work that way. And so maybe partly to your point, um, I'll read this section out of Stephen King wrote this book, Dance Macabre. Right. Um, which is sort of just like him ruminating on horror and horror media. He likes a lot, um, but he has a section on radio um, and he posits the CBS radio mystery theater. Cause I think it's around the time he's writing the book, probably late seventies.
1: Um, yeah. I think, I think dance came out in like 81 or so, which is just like, yeah, like you said, it's like, it's Stephen King who is at that point, he's become a household name. You know, he's got all these bestsellers, you know, his, his movies are being made into these blockbuster movies and now he's like, okay, we're going to take a step back and I'm going to show you all these different tendencies in horror that inspired me. He talks about, you know, um, short fiction, novels, and then he's talking about radio. And in the moment he's writing, there's this revival series, CBS Radio Mystery Theater. And um, yeah, by all means, go ahead. I'm, I'm I, I want to remind our listeners what, you know, one of the masters of horror thought of this program.
0: Totally. And it does seem like, You know, it seems to me that part of the problem here is trying to phrase it as a revival specifically, which immediately puts in the listeners mind, it's going to be like that, you know, instead of just doing a new thing, right? So here's King. Uh, King says, drama is still to be found on the radio. God knows CBS mystery theater is a case in point. And there's even comedy, as every devoted follower of that abysmally inept superhero chicken man knows. I have no idea what this is, by the way. No idea. I have no idea. But the Mystery Theater seems oddly flat, oddly dead, a curiosity only. There's none of the heavy emotional zap that used to come out of the radio when Inner Sanctum's creaking door swung open every week, or during Dimension X, I Love a Mystery, or the early days of suspense. Although I listen to Mystery Theater when I can, and happen to think E.G. Marshall does a great job as a host, I don't particularly recommend it. It is a fluke like a Studebaker that still runs, poorly, or the last surviving ack even more than these CBS mystery theater is like an electrical power cable through which a heavy, almost lethal current used to run in which now lies inexplicable, inexplicably cold and harmless. Like, okay, I get it. I, I totally get it. But like if yes, if you have a memory of like, the achievement of you know a cooper and an obler or norman corwin or something like that like yeah of course this is silly but it's a it's a transitional moment you know i don't know i i I want to reclaim little moments in this show uh that that are so interesting like of course it's not going to be the modernist masterpiece you know but but that's over it can't be because that because that's because that's done you know
1: yeah, you've, you've kind of inspired me to give this series another chance. And I'd be lying if I said I'm going to go back and like revisit every episode. You
0: can't. There's too many. <laughs> Looking
1: for those diamonds in the rough. But again, just to repeat myself a tad, I just think it's a shame that they didn't do more with this format. Because it didn't... I agree with you. It, it, it needn't be a purely revival series. They could have just made it, this is uh, new radio drama. This is what uh, what what did we what, what was the term we, we that kind of came up when we were talking about nightfall? It could have been rock and roll radio drama. Right, yeah. And I think because Hyman Brown was involved, he didn't want it to be. He wanted it to be sort of a self-aggrandizing tip of the hat to his own his own um history with radio drama. And he I think perhaps subconsciously Brown and others maybe, maybe even listeners, I don't know. I'm I'm just, you know, shooting from the hip here. I think they wanted radio drama to be stuck in that early to mid century moment. And that was to, to its detriment that CBS Radio Mystery kind of just went along with that expectation. So I, I wanna say one more uh, <laughs> disparaging thing, and then we can go on to talking about this episode, which I, I do think is brilliant. And I, I don't want this whole episode just to be slagging off um, you know what, what what CBS RMT was uh, in general. And I just wanna say one of my other objections with, with this program is I, I really don't think it respects the intelligence of its audience. I think that it starts off with like a like a teaser clip from somewhere in the in the middle of the story. I think that's kind of hokey, and I think it just kind of shoots itself in the foot when it does when it employs tactics like that. And sort of cynically, I think what it is what it, what it's also doing is just padding out the, the running time. Oh, it's totally. Like, oh, we'll just run this like one minute clip twice, and that that's one less that's one less minute of of dialogue or action or whatever we're going to have to have our writers work on. And it just it's so. Uh, it just gets to be so trite and boring when you have to listen to like the same scene twice in a one hour thing. Like it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's like you're, it's like you don't have faith that people are going to listen to your, your program. So you have to give them like this tantalizing little, you know, snippet in the hopes that they'll stick around. And I just find it, uh, I just find it off putting. So, okay. All, all that, all that, um, <laughs> all those disparaging remarks out of the way, unless you have something more, Matt, let's talk about this story and, and what we think works about it. Cause, cause, as we've, as we've keep, as we keep saying, we like this. This is, this is a great hour of radio drama.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, a minute ago, you sort of compared it to a Cooper script and I think that's part like why I like it. Like I could see obviously not the, the, the exact specifics and the, the, all the content or anything, but like this has a Cooper vibe, right? Like the, uh, five miles underground or whatever the name of that lost episode is. Um, The, the, the kind of mystery being one that like the spectacle itself is not the mystery, but the thing that the mystery suggests, which is a very Cooper thing, right? Like, uh, uh, the, the first episode, right? Being, uh, there's this place that we see through the telescope, but there's nothing there, right? Like you, they have the moment where the guy steps in the house and he gets teleported to the other you know, zone or whatever. And you have the creepy astronomer saying this stuff. But really what's scary about that is the concept of like being and nothing, being this like dual, you know, blah, 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 blah whatever, right? Like, oh my God. And then you can't stop thinking about like the philosophical metaphysical concept that that is there. And that's where the horror comes from. And that's exactly what the script does, right? Is that, and it's even a little silly is when they go down there, It's books, and they they make a a, a, they go out of their way to. And this is my one sort of beef, maybe a little bit with it, is that like, oh look, there's Hemingway and there's Faulkner and there's Shakespeare, as if like the point that like history repeats itself is like literally it repeats itself exactly the same, and like I was back there too, right? You know, okay, all right, all right, I and maybe this is to your point of like, it doesn't trust its listener to get the listener to understand this is history repeating itself. We have to show that it's Shakespeare. Right. Um, But you know, the cyclical history stuff, it seems clear. You just say this was an earlier civilization from 2 million years ago that they did it. And now we're here again. It's, it's the same thing. Um, But like in that zone, right. It's, it's a little bit corny. It's a house. Uh, there, there's even a comment where it's like, oh, look, the, the furniture is straight out of a catalog or, or something like this, which, which is a little silly. And then even like the reveal at the very end is like, they find the ninth volume and after this whole mystery, oh my God, the ninth volume is missing. Where is it? It was just in the other room on the coffee table. They, they didn't look
1: there. (laughs) They didn't look there first. Right. Yeah. Do you remember a week or so ago you and I were talking about this episode just sort of informally and, um, I sort of posited that tying, tying it to like the classic radio drama era um, or maybe that maybe like more of a transition era. You know, we talked about the drop, the Arch Obler's drop dead LP recently. And I sort of, cause there, there are some corny aspects to this. I, I was in, a, in kind of a jovial moment. I was thinking, Oh, what if this is where the laughing man from the drop dead? Album <laughs> yeah. And he's not there because he's out, you know, observing uh, the shenanigans going on in the world. And he only comes back to, you know, rest and, and to update his volume. And I don't know that, that, that image just uh, made me laugh. Cause, cause sometimes a story puts you in such a dark place, you know, on like an intellectual level that you have to just, you know, if, if the story doesn't give you a moment of comic relief, you kind of just have to create one because it's like, this is, this is kind of a downer story. It's, 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 you know, like the writer grabbing the listener by the shoulders and saying, don't you see this is actually what, you know, take away the fantastic plot, contrivance going on here. And this is, this is, this is what's going on. You know, we're going to eventually run out of oil and our whole way of life is going to be topsy-turvy. And if we don't change what we're doing as a species and as nations and all that, we're just going to destroy ourselves. So we're back to the, you know, the, the artist as a, uh, as prophet, as, as we often were, yeah. guard Schobler and Willis Cooper. And yeah, I, incidentally, I tried to look up more about the writer of this, uh, whose name I'm forgetting right now. And I wasn't able to find anything. Um, Percy Granger. Percy Granger. I, I think uh, and, and remember when I say I looked into it, I, I did like a Google search, and when I didn't see anything, I just immediately gave up. So not an academic that's like that's how
0: you know, we do it here on, on Quietly yeah. uh, by the way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I have no discipline when it comes to that. I'm like, well, someone else doesn't do the actual research, so I guess I guess that'll just be a mystery forever, at least in, <laughs> in the context of our podcast. So yeah, I'd be curious to know more about that Percy Granger guy and what what his uh, what his uh, political leanings work because you know you hear a story like this and you think okay this guy had to have been thinking on the same wavelength as weirdos like us and unfortunately i couldn't i couldn't find anything else out about him so i don't know maybe one of our listeners out there knows more about about that guy or just about the writers they tended to use on cbs radio mystery theater because i i know i know next to nothing
0: yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, I don't know a ton about Percy Granger. The best I can find is on the, like, there's a CBS Radio Mystery Theater fan site, and it sort of lists stuff, and it says he wrote for soaps as well as some, like, he did, like, 31 episodes of CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Oh, wow. But I think that's all that's there. I'm sure there's more stuff. Um, but, you know, this is the the this is the gray area of the entertainment world that IMDb doesn't cover, so we don't know,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. No, but Incidentally, um, this is, this perhaps is neither here nor there, but are all the, are, are all the episodes of CBS radio mystery, uh, preserved or are there, are there like missing chunks?
0: I'm not sure. I think they, I think they are, um, at the very least, I know that towards the end, they started doing a lot of, um, rebroadcasts, mm-hmm. which I don't think it was, it was like playing the transcription of the earlier one. They would just do a script again. Um,
1: Re- like I, reproduce something they had done before. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay um we, you know uh, five days a week after six years you're like jesus christ like let's let's reuse a script nobody's heard before or something like that um i don't know um i don't know of any lost episodes um but yeah not sure um no but but something else i wanted to point to is what we were talking about much earlier when we first started talking about this is the the energy stuff um there are a couple other episodes of cbs radio mystery theater that deal with the like 70s energy crisis. Um, I forget the name, but there's this other one that's it's really weird. They're like, there's people who like, they go, they get on a plane and it turns out the plane is like being flown by aliens in like some big energy crisis is happening and the world gets like drowned by water and like these aliens are repopulating. Anyway, it's very silly. One of these, one of these kind of really corny scripts. But it also like like the the point is is the sort of fear of the '70s energy crisis moment, and I can't help but think about something that you know we've been thinking through with Obler and Cooper in Quiet Please, and how much the sort of nuclear anxiety of the '40s, even if it's not explicit, just bleeds into so many of those Quiet Please episodes and other radio, obviously other radio programs, especially like Dimension X and stuff and stuff like this, right? Um, but like. You know, we just talked about the concept of what opening up the nuclear bomb does in the anxiety about like civilization could end. Uh, what is the progress of civilization? What ha, have we, uh, uh, you know, signed our own death, you know, certificates or something like this. Right. In, in, I do find this interesting here. It's obviously not as thoughtful. It's not as artful, Um, but it's an anxiety is there, right? Th- there is an awareness in the seventies and, and keep in mind too. Um, just to be really pedantic about it, the show airs one year after 1973, which famously is like, you know, scholars have pointed to is like kind of the year where, you know, what we call neoliberalism emerges, right? OPEC oil crisis. Uh, New York City almost goes bankrupt. The dollar's off the gold standard. Uh, you know, the, the, a couple years later, the Volcker shock, you know, the, the interest rates jack up, there's, there's a recession, Thatcher and Reagan. Like, like this is this moment where the old world is being, the old sort of modern world post-war is being transformed into the world we all live in now today, The sort of neoliberal hellscape, right? Which in this moment is like unintelligible because it's just stuff is changing and it's weird. And so that's one of the things I find so fascinating about this episode is that it doesn't give us something like a Cooper who's like ruminating philosophically on what the atom bomb does to our sense of history and blah, 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 blah. Rather, it's someone who's like in this moment of the world changing being like, whoa, whoa, something's up. This is weird. Like, I feel like the end is coming and I don't know what it would be, but like, Ah, i don't know something feels weird right and so when i when i hear this play it's just it's drenched in that and that's what i really love about it um to also keep in mind it's you know it's it's obviously about peak oil they're oil drillers but like we don't ever get to see what's in the ninth volume right that's the whole point it's like i don't it, it's gonna lead to something whatever is in that book it's it's pretty bad you know down so so far that the other guy's like i don't want to know i don't tell me what's yeah. in the book
1: right Yeah, that's part of the brilliance of this is that it actually leaves something to the it leaves a lot of things to the imagination. The fact that we never meet uh, the person living in that room, the sort of, dare we say, a cosmic visitor of sorts. Uh. Um, And we never see what's in the ninth volume, uh, but we're left with a lot of food for thought. And I think, you know, tying it back into the real world, I mean, most people don't stop and think, hey, am I living in a historical moment of transition? You know, most people don't think think like that, even though... um, if you are thinking like that, it usually kind of drives you crazy in a certain place because <laughs> <Yep. laughs> uh, no one wants to think of, it. you just want to think. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people, you know, this is a digression of, uh, of course, but that's why a lot of we're living in this age of just terminal nostalgia, you know, yes. and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes I get up on a Saturday morning and I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to the supermarket and buy some, some shitty sugary cereal. Like I used to eat when I was a kid and I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch all the dumb shows I used to watch when I was, Eleven years old on Fox Kids, and why do I do that? It's because, well, I don't know. My, my therapist might say it's because I spend too much time thinking about bleak stuff. That sometimes my brain is like, "Please, God, just let's just watch Erie, Indiana, and uh, you know, X Men cartoons for a couple yep. hours. Take a take a, a goddamn break from it." And um, you know, the modern iteration of that is people who who just the they don't engage with any pop culture from before 2010. You know, to pick an arbitrary year. And their only cultural points of reference are Marvel movies and DC movies, and they they are just incapable of appreciating any kind of pop culture from another era because they can't they can't they can't think about it. They can't think about anything that's that's from a, di- a different historical moment. And so, if, if you're not willing to do that, you're probably not willing to think about you know our own current moment and where we're headed because it's uh, right it's too depressing. Which so, which yeah. which is a simple, like. To get on my high
0: horse which is a symptom of the ninth volume right the shit in that yeah. book is really bad so it's like like, like <laughs> you
1: said like that character who says like i don't want to know i just want to i just want to keep doing my job and living my life yeah and if we're just going to repeat the same things over and over then so be it but i want to just kind of you know it's like uh what's the, what, a cipher in the, in the matrix you know mm-hmm. he's like i know the steak i'm eating isn't real but man it tastes good and I just want to just make me someone important, you know, erase, erase, erase this forbidden knowledge that I have because I don't yeah. I can't bear it anymore. I, I just want to ignorance is bliss. Please just just wipe my wipe my slate clean and let me totally my, my fake stake and, and live, uh, live in, in blissful uh, ignorance.
0: And I won't lie, I am constitutionally incapable of living like that. Like my brain just doesn't work that way, but I won't lie I, there. Some days I wake up and I'm like, I, I just, I, I would give anything. <laughs> I would give anything to just be able to do that. You know, just, it, 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 it make things so much easier. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, the other thing that I really find interesting about this outside of the energy crisis stuff is just simply, um, I don't know, putting this in conversation maybe with other kind of post-apocalyptic kind of or or, or better way of saying it, Pre-post apocalyptic narratives that are beginning to emerge maybe sort of at this moment, right? Um, so I don't know, David, if you have thoughts on this. Like, what do you? What do you mean by that? What do you? What do you mean
1: pre-post apocalyptic?
0: Well, we have stuff like you know, uh, with the atom bomb, um, we suddenly get lots of narratives about you know the last man on earth emerges, right? We watched a uh, uh, the last man on earth, the Vincent Price movie, a couple weeks ago together. Yeah. Um, but you know the the trope of the, the lone survivor after the event really becomes thinkable, I think, once the idea of an atom bomb that where like, all of all of soci- all of civilization can end in a heartbeat, and then you're just left there, right? Like, you don't quite have this narrative device earlier 19th, 18th centuries, where like, you would start to get apocalyptic imaginaries, but like, you know, there's no concept of any single device that would end all of civilization in a moment. So you don't have the concept of the one survivor after everything, right? However, uh, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, through the 80s a little bit, I guess, the atom bomb trope is there. But maybe what we're starting to see here is the beginning of, of what is now a big thing, I think, in a lot of um, science fiction literatures, you know, uh, cli-fi, I hate these terms, but like, you know, the, the climate crisis and like the, the, the notion of the ecological crisis being one that also does not lend itself to the narrative of the lone survivor who's immune left after civilization is over, but like being in the position where you're before the event, right? You're like, you're like right before it happens. Yeah. And so much literature is about like, it's right there tomorrow, it's gonna happen. And I just, that feels so of the present like all of our crises, whether it's the climate or, I don't know, the Ukraine war or, you know, the economy, everything else. Like, it feels like the past five years has just been this constant state of like, it's this thing that's just tomorrow. It, it's almost here, right? And I find it really interesting to see a piece that so explicitly gets at that in 1977, right? Definitely. That like, yeah. this could have been written with some slight, you know, aesthetic changes in a, I don't know, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone that was on like two years ago. This could have been an episode there and, and people would have read it as like, oh, that's what 2019 is like, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, here in the real world, we are in kind of this do or die moment and, you know, it's it's hard to face up to that. But I apologize. I'm just going to have to have to lean on a cliche. Um, I mean, it's a, I think it's a great sentiment. But I, and I want to say it's an Ursula K. Le Guin quote that she may have said before her death, or maybe it's someone else that I'm misattributing it. But anyway, someone somewhere said, you know, it's, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. In fact, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was Kim Stanley Robinson. I don't know. It was, it it was,
0: it was Frederick Jameson. My, my.
1: That was Frederick Jameson. It
0: was Jameson. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it was Frederick Jameson. But it's a
0: famous quote. It's a very famous. Yes. Yes.
1: And, yeah, and, and its popularity doesn't diminish its, um it's relevance. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, maybe I shouldn't apologize for using it, but I think that's true in a lot of, in a lot of fiction. And and what do we get with the post-apocalyptic fiction? It's often like, you know, the the last man on earth. It's like, e- even in our post-apocalyptic imaginings, we can't imagine it's anything but one man. Right. Exactly. Trying, you know, it's like, it's like, we're so in, at least here in America, we're so ingrained to think of things in like these sort of right-wing libertarian terms where it's like me against society and society is all wrong. And I'm, I'm the one that knows, you know the way things should really be, and um, you know, I, to be clear, I love that that sort of uh, mid-century moment of you know Richard Matheson's "I Am Legend," and I you know I I sort of somewhat ironically like the movie iterations of that of that story. But um, it's interesting that you know, s- with the exception of people like Kim Stanley Robinson with his Mars trilogy or Ursula K. Le Guin with a lot of the stuff she was writing in the '70s, a lot of science fiction only can only sort of present a framework for a post-apocalyptic story as like one person surviving or like one very small group of people surviving and trying to do something, trying to make something of it. And I don't know, I, I guess maybe that says something about us and, and how yeah. we have such a limited framework for not just perce- not just imagining how the real world could be, but even even it spills over into how we tell the stories about what, what the post-apocalyptic um, sort of moments might look like. And it's uh, it's hard to come to terms with. I don't know because because uh, yeah, it's so frustrating that, that you know we could have we could have steered the we could have uh, steered the ship away from disaster, and we just you know as as this story, the ninth volume gives us, you can't do that in a market economy because it's impossible to to make any kind of real reforms yeah. um, when you have an an entire economy and an entire society that's structured around producing for profit and not for need to use totally. another total cliche and know, what we quote. have
0: in what we have left over at the end is the survivor is the guy who's like i don't want to know i don't want to know don't let me know and then okay well here we are let's let's start over that's so much easier than, than thinking about all the problems that have led us to this point right <laughs>
1: yeah. and that's well, why we like the story It's because it uh it, it sort of panders to our uh complete hopelessness about the future and yeah. it also just reminds us about uh you know um The people warning us about how things could have been different or never listened to and always ignored and marginalized and all that good stuff.
0: But then also this thrilling sense of like, just that concept that like, they're all there. This happened before there was a Shakespeare back then, you know, and like, what's in that book in that, that device here, I think is so like, what is in that book, the book, the book is there.
1: Right? It's a device that's been used uh, pretty famously. I mean, the ending of the of the new Battlestar Galactica was this basic ending, right? Where you know it's all been done before, and we're just gonna. I know a lot of people didn't like that ending for that series, but uh, that was what they that was the direction they chose to go with it. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's got a certain. That's word I'm looking for. It's got, it's got a got certain... Lure. Prof- it's got a lure. It's you got know. A, yeah, it's, it's got, got a it's got certain perf- uh, yeah. profundity. Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. Profundity yeah. Uh, to it, and the fact that we. You know, people writers keep employing that that sort of ending. Is uh, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it says something.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the interesting episodes of CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Um, I think there's more out there. Um, we probably, I don't know. I, I feel like I can speak for the pod. We probably aren't going to do one in quite some time or a while, if if again. But uh,
1: probably not. Yeah, there's but, some there's
0: some good ones out there,
1: you know. But I know we have some listeners that are fans of this series. You know, maybe. Maybe um, from a respectful distance, perhaps. But uh, if, if you happen to know this series better than Matt and I, by all means, reach out. And uh, you know I can't promise that we're going to discuss it on the podcast. But I, just for our own curiosity, I'd be, be interested to know which episodes you think are sort of a cut above the rest. So as always, email us at quietlyyourspodcast at gmail.com if you want to disagree with us or agree with us or just point things out that maybe uh, didn't occur to us. And on that note, we have uh, another bit of listener feedback, Matt, regarding oh. our recent discussion of 3,000 words, the Quiet Please episode. And once again, this is from our listener, David Grigg, who I believe is from Michigan. And um, if you'll indulge me, dear listener, I'm going to read uh, just, I'm not going to read the whole email, but I'm going to read some snippets of it uh, in regards to that that particular Quiet Please. You may recall, incidentally, that I, I, I was wondering, uh, what, where this particular melody that they used for the, in that episode came from that I've also heard in other radio dramas, and David Grigg actually knew the answer. So here we go. 3,000 words is an underappreciated gem in the series, and I always forget about it. You posed a question about the music that Berman used as a theme throughout the play. If I'm not mistaken, it's taken from the opening bassoon solo in Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, which I went back and listened to, incidentally, and he's correct. It's from the very beginning of that, that piece. It's a fairly famous melody, and I've heard it used in other radio plays, too. I agree that it's used to good effect to help set the dark mood. Well, then he has some things to say about uh, our previous discussion of Presto change i I'm sure. He says, on the discussion of Presto change you both talked about Chapel's acting range. The voices between these two episodes are an impressive contrast. I can't understand why he didn't have more acting roles outside Quiet Please, nor am I aware of much else. I've got an old 78 record set of an audio drama... An adaptation of charles dickens a christmas carol that he produced in the 1940s but he doesn't seem to do much more than narrate such a pity he was so talented and i will just say on that on that final note um you can find that that uh production of, of, of dickens a christmas carol on youtube um i don't actually own the the original vinyl but i'm sure you could find some on discogs or, or or on ebay or something like that that might be kind of a cool little uh you know one, one of the few Ernest chapel sort of artifacts from the, from the old era because we know quiet please never had any real commercial releases other than like i think one radiola release from the 70s that cut kind of, that one the b side was the thing on the formal board and the a side was the uh oh, what's the what's the story from escape i think it was about the the rats invading the lighthouse
0: line again versus the ants is that no
1: no i'm sorry not not ants uh, rats
0: Line, yeah. Line. It's like line versus the light, something like
1: the that. Lighting, that was versus the ants. That was like a, Oh, three, the, skeleton three skeleton uh, keys, three skeleton key. That's it. Yeah. And, um, I, I actually, I used to own a copy of that. Um, you can find, you can find copies of that, uh, pretty readily out there. If you're a record collector, like I used to be, um, it's, it's kind of a cool little artifact to have as, as is, um, that I, I I think it was sometime in the early 40s. I think it was before Quiet Please started. Um Ernest Chappell did the narration for this um this production of a Christmas carol that to my knowledge was never broadcast on radio, but it was just put out as a as a record That's really interesting. Yeah, anyway, you can find that on on YouTube, I think. And uh yeah, we want to thank David Grigg for uh for you know answering that question. The Rites of Spring. Absolutely. I, I, should, I should know more about classical music, but uh, but I don't. So thanks for answering that. And and as always, thanks for the feedback. Um, We encourage, we encourage feedback please get in touch. If you have anything to say about an episode we're going to be doing or an episode we've done that maybe you have a different take on. And, uh, and if it's, if we like it, we'll read it on, on the podcast. So on that note, Matt, um, next up, I think we have pretty special episode. And is that next? that's next and let me just say somewhat uh on a somewhat corny note i'll just say if you don't think we put a little bit of effort into preparing a special halloween episode for you boy have you got another thing coming
0: (laughs) well i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be very exciting so until next time quietly yours